Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. Earlier this month, the U.S. Department of Agriculture released the latest update to the Plant Hardiness Zone map. It's based on a 30-year average of the coldest winter temperatures recorded all around the country. It tells you what plants or shrubs are likely to survive where. The latest version of the map was co-developed by researchers by researchers at the PRISM Climate Group at Oregon State University. It charts an average nationwide increase, a shift of 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Chris Daly is the lead author of this new map. He's the founding director of the PRISM Climate Group and a professor in the College of Engineering at Oregon State University. He joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. How do people use this map? Well, I think probably the best way to describe it would be that if you are a gardener and you like to grow perennial plants, these are plants that overwinter and usually last for many years, such as azaleas, rhododendrons, uh, camellias, uh, even in trees as well. They're, They're accompanied in your nursery by a tag and a tag will have a zone that that plant is rated to. Let's say, for example, in the Willamette Valley here, we're zone 8B. The idea would be that if that plant is rated to zone 8B or lower, which would be a colder extreme minimum temperature, then you're likely to be able to successfully grow that plant in your garden. So plant breeders and nurserymen, they always make sure to have those tags available to the gardener so they know what they're getting into when they buy that plant. Why focus on extreme low temperatures as opposed to extreme highs? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I think the, first of all, I should say that the plant is, that the map is only focusing on low temperatures. And that has been a tradition at the USDA for a number of years. In fact, these variations of these map go back about a hundred years or so. And I think the idea was, okay, we're going to focus just on one aspect of plant survival, and that is overwintering cold winters uh, to see if a plant can survive that, because it really has a lot to do with whether uh, someone is spending a lot of money on plants and and finds that they don't make it. Uh, And I think, though, that we need to be cognizant of the fact that there are many other factors that will influence whether a plant can survive in your garden. You know, our, our summers are getting hotter and drier and longer. Um, our drought period during the summertime is extending uh, due to climate change. And so all these things will have uh, a lot of effects as to whether a plant will survive. But this is a major factor that's very important. Hmm. What is different about the way this map was put together from earlier editions in previous decades? And we can also talk about the the, the shifts that it uh, it actually charts. But what was different about the way you created it? So we came onto the scene um, for the 2012 release, and we worked with the USDA in the 20 aughts uh, to develop that map. And that was the first time that the map became digital. Before that, it was done with uh, mostly with kind of manual subjective methods, even hand-drawn methods, uh, so that we really didn't have a, a very detailed map to work with. And so by working with USDA, we made it clear that we had the technology with our PRISM modeling to be able to do this map 
in a much more detailed and digital way. So in terms of what has changed from the 2012 map to the 2023 map, we've brought in a lot more data. We have data from over 13,000 stations this time compared to under 8,000 last time. And part of the reason for that is that we've now aligned the averaging period of this map to be uh, the same as that for the official climate normals, which is 1991 through 2020. Uh, that those that normal period moves forward once a decade with a year ending in zero. So when we get to 19, uh, uh, 2021, uh, 2001 through 2030, that will be the next normal period. And in the process of mapping those normals, we were able to do a lot of work to bring in a lot more data. Also, we're always on uh, uh, kind of on, on a tear to try to improve our modeling techniques. And we do that pretty regularly. This time, uh, the 2023 map, we've improved our, our uh, uh, simulation of zonal changes along coastlines and especially at higher elevations. Uh, I think, though, that needs to be uh, understood that the plant hardiness statistic is really recording an extreme event. So it's the coldest night of the year every year. So you've got 30 numbers to work with. So that's a pretty volatile number that changes a lot, depending on whether you get that big cold air outbreak from Canada or whether you don't. So some of the changes that we've seen may also be due to the luck of the draw in terms of what years you are now in the averaging period and what years have been left out. And finally, of course, some of the changes are due to climate change. I think we know for a fact that average temperatures are rising due to climate change. Over the long term, this should cause plant hardiness zones to gradually move northward. But many areas of the southwest showed some cooling, too, so it's not that straightforward. Uh, over the shorter term, we don't have a good understanding of how the frequency, intensity, and timing of these events would bring us the coldest temperatures of the year um, in a warming world. You know, there's some talk about we may see increased volatility in our weather patterns, for example. Meaning, if I understand, it, so so yeah. even if the average temperature um, over the course of a year is going up, there may be even more extremes so that there might be a, a, a colder low on one single night, right? That's correct. Yeah, I, I think about the 2021 uh, so-called polar vortex that went down into the central part of the country and froze Texas. You know, those those situations may become more frequent. We don't we're not really sure, but it's possible that we would get more flow coming out of the north uh, from the Arctic Canada. And yeah, as you say, it all it takes is one one cold night um, and that's recorded for that year. It really shows how in, in, a, in a very clear way the, the challenges of a single map or a single tag on a, a rhododendron at some nursery when we're talking about the the both a warming world and a more volatile climatological world it just makes me wonder if 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 we're just collectively putting too much stock in in a single map right i, I couldn't agree more i it is just one single map and even even in a climate that's relatively stationary, which ours appears to be not, it's only looking at the average coldest night of the year over 30 years. Uh, and it doesn't tell you how cold it will be uh, or how cold it has been. Uh, you can still get those extremely cold temperatures. And I think typically what you'll hear uh, garden centers counsel gardeners is that you might not want to push your zones too far 
That is, if you are in Zone 8B, like we are in here in the Lamont Valley, you'd be maybe a, it might be a good idea to go down a couple of zones and look for plants that are adapted to six zone sixes rather than zone eights. If uh, I just, can just so sure. so meaning, imagine that you're in Northern California as opposed to the Lamont Valley. Right. So that that's right. So you would say, okay, let's let's see if we can find something uh, that we know will survive colder temperatures. Uh, than what we typically experience here in case you do get that cold snap that may really damage your plants. Oh, I was actually then, uh, maybe I was going in the wrong direction. You're saying um, plant things as if we were in a place that has colder temperatures, even though we live in a warming world. Right. It may be, it may be that that's what we see. I think, as I mentioned, in the long run, I think climate change will start to warm things up. Uh, you, if, if you think about it, Given a, a cold air outbreak from Canada, that source area, that source air up in Canada will, will be warming as well. But we really don't know how those weather patterns that bring those cold temperatures will vary in the future with climate change. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about the latest edition of the Plant Hardiness Zone map. It was co-developed by researchers at Oregon State University. Chris Daly is the lead author of this new map. He's a professor in the College of Engineering at OSU. For things like flood maps, there can be some pretty serious financial repercussions based on where the lines are drawn, especially for things like insurance. Is there anything comparable for a plant hardiness map? I think there's probably a couple things. Uh, the first thing is that there is a lot of money at stake when plant breeders breed plants and they do their testing in gardens to see what types of cold temperatures these perennial plants that they're developing can tolerate. And I think that they don't want those plants to fail. And there are a number of, of stores and outlets that simply will send plants back to them if they don't work out. So there is a lot of uh, horticultural money involved in making sure that these maps uh, are accurate. Uh, but we do have the issue of the zones. Um, we're going, we talk, we're talking about 10 degree zones and five degree half zones, as you mentioned in your intro, but five degrees is a lot. And all you need, if you're on the edge of a, of a, of a, of a zone, for example, if you're very close to the next warmest zone and the map says you've moved one degree Fahrenheit, a little warmer, that could plunk you into a new half zone. It's not really that important. But people see these divisions and think, oh, my goodness, I've just changed a half zone. That means I can start planting a, a bunch of new plants. I think also that uh, on the insurance side, the USDA Risk Management Agency, the RMA, who administers the federal crop insurance program, also pays close attention to the map, especially when it comes to insuring uh, losses from nurseries. You mentioned early on that um, for the the map uh, about 11 years ago, it was the first time that it was made digitally as opposed to, in some cases, people literally using um, hand-drawn <laughs> uh, aspects of it. What about people using it digitally? I mean, will this work on folks' cell phones? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. We've seen a big change in how people are accessing the map this time. We've literally had hundreds of thousands of people access the map in the past week or so. And this time people are using their smartphones, which did not occur in 2012. I think what's happening is that people are clicking on links uh, uh, from stories that they see online uh, talking about the map. 
And because the smartphone real estate is not very large, you can't see the actual map. It's just not possible to render that map in such a small space. So what you do get is a zip code finder. And you can uh, enter your zip code and see what the plant hardiness zone is for your location or any other location where you happen to know the zip code. Uh, and I think some people don't don't know about the actual website, uh, the ARS, uh, USDA ARS website. They just uh, are seeing what they're seeing on their phone and nothing more. Uh, so hopefully uh, the word will get out that there is a website that has a big interactive map and a number of static state maps you can download. Uh, so there's quite a number of, of images and uh, uh, utilities that you can look at on the actual website. I mentioned that you're the founding director of the PRISM Climate Group at OSU, which is all about mapping and climate change. What are you excited to be working on next in terms of this, this intersection of a graphical understanding of the world and a warming world? Well, I think we're we're constantly kind of digging in and trying to create maps that are at higher resolution and in greater detail and in greater accuracy. Uh, my background spans a pretty unique combination of disciplines, uh, meteorology, climatology, geography, ecology, uh, modeling. And so I, I'm really interested in being able to create maps that describe what the environment is like at a particular location just as accurately as possible. And we, we are ones where we don't focus on projections of climate change into the future. We're more about being able to describe accurately what's happened in the past. And so there are a lot of issues in terms of weather stations coming and going and shifting positions and quality control of data where we're trying to work on ways to try to bring uh, try to bring some of this old data to, for, uh, to the fore into our mapping process and make them as accurate as possible, both spatially and temporally. Chris Daly, thanks very much. Thank you. Chris Daly is a professor in the College of Engineering at Oregon State University, where he is the founding director of the PRISM Climate Group. He's also the lead author of the new Plant Hardiness Zone Map. Finally today, senior producer Allison Frost joins me to read some of your recent feedback. Hey, Allison. Hey, Dave. Well, last week, we looked at a new romance-focused bookstore in Vancouver, and we asked if you're a fan of the genre. Melanie Metz said she likes knowing that things will work out even after problems and misunderstandings. Same is true, she says, for sitcoms and Hallmark movies. I need the peace that comes with knowing it will work out for the good. There's enough not working out in the world, and it hurts my soul. Aliyah Bree Hall wrote, Yes, they're generally a lighthearted opportunity to explore complex emotions, internal wounds, and relationship dynamics. Josie Hanneman commented, happy endings reduce anxiety. You know what to expect. Same for most mysteries and a lot of genre reading. Yay for mental health supports in fiction reading. Carol Clevelandberg wrote, I've always been a fan of gothic romance. A good mystery, a pinch of horror, with a little romance thrown in for sweetness. Hashtag Jane Eyre. Then there's Charmaine Rigg, who said, I actually don't care for it. I like true stories, such as Brave the Wild River that I just read, about two women botanists on the river trip to map plants of the Grand Canyon, or A Journey into Matisse's South of France that I'm reading now. Historical fiction that has a true relationship included would be okay if it isn't schmaltzy. <laughs> Yesterday, we heard about the teacher shortage facing the state. Irma Kapsenberg sent us an email. 
I understand part of this problem. I was good enough to sub as teacher during the COVID years with my Dutch elementary certification. However, no longer can I teach in the public schools because the requirements to get recertified for foreign English-speaking teachers in Oregon are ridiculous, and the public schools are missing out on great teachers. Oregon's TSPC shouldn't complain before they get more flexible and realistic. Finally, the historic Portland public school teacher strike came to an end this week. We asked our listeners how relieved they were that school was back in session. April Johnson wrote, My greatest relief is for the positive changes for our schools through the new contract our teachers fought so hard for. I'm so proud of our teachers and community for their commitment to better schools. Beth Parsons wrote, Very relieved, but it seems like the state needed this wake-up call concerning the poor funding for our schools. We need to be comparable to the really good-performing states, like Connecticut, not the poor-performing ones, like Mississippi. Ted Fountain wrote, Kids need an education and teachers need to teach all back where they belong. Lucy Garrick wrote, I am pleased that the teachers finally got a good shake. It's unfortunate that it takes a strike to express how much we value public education and the teachers that care for our children. That kids can't go to school is on the school district for not treating teachers fairly, not the instructors. And while many said they were relieved, some of our listeners shared some of their concerns. Dunya Markham wrote, Nixing the first week of winter break is going to be very unfair for a lot of families for any number of reasons. Teachers weren't on vacation over the strike. They were on the picket lines every day. Plus, there are workers who aren't on teacher contracts. Are they now expected to work as well? We need a complete overhaul of leadership in the district. Sarah R.K. wrote, I'm guessing families who already booked flights for the holidays are upset. We usually stay in town and work through most of the holidays, so having our kid in school occupied and learning is a relief. We always welcome your emails and comments in whatever form. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. Our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. On Facebook, we're at OPBTOL. Thanks, Allison. You're welcome, Dave. Tomorrow on the show, a new study from OHSU used TikTok to survey teens about their knowledge of menstrual health. We'll talk to one of the researchers about the gaps they found and what parents and healthcare providers can do to help fill them. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on NPR's app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford. Members make Think Out Loud and all of OPB's independent journalism possible. Support the next fascinating story and join in as a sustainer at opb.org pod.